episode 10 of Read and Succeed. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WFMP LP Louisville, reviewing the brilliant 2020 Pulitzer Prize winner for biography, Sontag, Her Life and Work, by Benjamin Moser today. The author himself runs the episode. Stay tuned. Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMP LP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Read and Succeed. No time wasted today. Following up episode nine, reviewing late 20th century Jewish American LGBT writer and cultural critic Susan Sontag's iconoclastic essays. With an episode reviewing 21st century Jewish American LGBT biographer Benjamin Moser's iconoclastic 2019 text Sontag, Her Life and Work winner of the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for Biography. I'm a firm believer that literary biographies are impossible to understand without first reading the subject in question's literature itself. And if you get a chance to read either Sontag or Moser, it is not time wasted. Both of their prose styles are mesmerizingly lucid, almost relaxing in their clarity, and both provide excellent examples and analysis of the late 20th century Jewish American and LGBT intellect and experience. Communities that are two of the main, if not the main, thought architects of modern American urban culture, and that's a culture that most of us in America right now can observe is being transformed before our very eyes. I found reading Sontag's essays and her biography by Benjamin Moser a uniquely simultaneous escape and insight into 2020 A.D., it was not time wasted. Additionally, with great prestige, this entire episode will be a recorded interview that Sontag's biographer Benjamin Moser sat down for with Jewish American essayist and literary critic Brenda Wineapple at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City College of New York's Graduate Center in late 2019, where Sontag herself once taught literature. Even if you don't have time to read either Sontag or Moser, it's still a fascinating interview and a look into the mind of not only Ms. Sontag, but also the mind of a professional biographer. Learn more about the Levon Levy Center for Biography at llcb.ws.gc.cuny.edu. Learn more about the late Susan Sontag at the Susan Sontag Foundation's website at susansontag.com. Learn more about Read and Succeed at readandsucceed.net. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to us on YouTube, and tune in to listen to us in the downtown Louisville area on 106.5 FM at 5 p.m. on Wednesdays, 1 p.m. on Thursdays, 8 a.m. on Fridays, all Eastern Standard Time and download all archived episodes of Read and Succeed via SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Lastly, a station plug on behalf of Forward Radio. We are independent, not-for-profit, listener-supported, volunteer-powered community radio, and we rely on your contributions to stay on air. Please go to forwardradio.org 
click participate to get behind these microphones and click donate if you like what you're hearing and want to help sustain it. Consider sponsoring an entire day's broadcast with a gift of just $20 to Forward Radio. And enjoy the interview. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Well, first of all, Ben, it's wonderful to be here with you in your wonderful new book. It's a book for our times. It's going to be, I think, already the definitive word on Susan Sontag. You did an enormous amount of work for this book, and one of the things that's uh, stunning about it is the material that you had to go through, the archives and the sheer, I don't even know how many interviews there were, and I think it's been said, and I think you've told me this, I've known Ben, I should just confess for a while, so it's not really an interrogation. I'm a great admirer of your Clarice Lespector and, of course, this book, and I consider myself an honored friend, so it's so nice to be here interrogating you <laughs> as a result of that. But, you know, I understand that you're the so-called authorized biographer. I guess there have been unauthorized books, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that means for an audience who may not know what that is, what are the advantages, and maybe even the disadvantages of authorization, and then we'll get to the Susan Sontag, but just to sort of yeah. start well, with Well, that's that. an interesting question because it's very hard to explain, even though it doesn't seem like a hard concept to me. I was yes. the authorized biographer, but this book is not the authorized biography. I think when you say the authorized biography, it sounds like it got a seal of approval from somebody or, or, ah. you know, it's, or that it had to be right. signed vetted. off on. It wasn't vetted. vetted. No, I don't think I would have done it if I had had that exactly. because I would sure. have had, I think for me as a writer, I have to be independent to exactly. draw my own conclusions and knowing that Sontag was this incredibly polemical person who's a fascinating person and who attracted all sorts of projections and thoughts and opinions about her often correct and even more often incorrect. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have stepped into that. What happened is I was actually in, in Rio doing what I thought was my last event ever for Clarice. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, I'm finally off the hook and I can go to the beach or something. I don't really go to the beach that much, just to be honest. But, you know, kind of relax, have a nice day, visit some bookstores, which is usually what I do. And I got an email saying, guess what? We've appointed you. Mm -hmm. Not appointed, but they some people, including her agent and her son and her publisher, had sort of read mm -hmm. a bunch of books and thought that I might, why this world was something that showed that I could take on Sontag. But then I had an agreement that meant the estate could look at the book and mm -hmm. comment on the book, and if there were any legal issues, they could talk about that, mm -hmm. but they could make suggestions, and those were helpful, but it wasn't I, didn't, I couldn't have written a book yeah. with a censor looking over my shoulder. No, of course not. But did that give you access to the enormous numbers of uh, people? Yeah. Or maybe it inhibited some of those people. It did I, you inhibit, know? Yeah, yeah. I would say it definitely gave access to some. Following Sontag's death, there was a sort of a rift between her son, David, and her partner, Annie Leibovitz. And the people in their world split into these two camps. Oh. for all sorts of reasons that I go into in the book, that didn't go well yeah. post-mortem. So Annie and her friends didn't like it because they mm. thought that I was David's little errand boy or something. So whatever 
access I think it gave me, it also took it away. Annie did eventually yeah. speak to me, so that was yeah. good. But I did get access. I think the really exciting thing I got access to are the archives that were yes. restricted. Yes. And that's kind of. That's very exciting because you made tremendous use of her journals in yeah. the book. And it really, you have a very strong voice, and I want to talk about that. And I mean that in all complete positive sense. But of course, Sontag has, herself has a strong voice. And one of the things, one of the motifs in the book is that there's a difference between Sontag's inner voice or personal voice, whatever you want to call it, interior voice, and the voice that she cultivated for the public, even though that changed over time. And I was wondering, in coming to put the book together, when did you begin to think about the motifs that you used to understand uh, Sontag's life. In other words, let me just quote you, because there was one quote that's really very interesting, I think, and might sort of give us a way to understand that. And you say at one point, you say, a mind's process gives narrative to the writer's life. And so one of the things that's wonderful about Ben's book, and that we want to talk about, it, is the, the mind's progress gives narrative to the writer's life. And so that you're looking for the way she thinks, really, yeah. you know, in that sense. But you have to have a way to develop that for the reader and to make that explicit. When did you begin to feel that you had an understanding of Sontag in the terms that you present her to us? Well, I think it comes back to the question of how polemical she was yeah. and how many opinions were affixed to her. Mm. From the time she was very young, I mean, already in her 20s was the first time that she was featured as a character in a novel. Mm -hmm. So she was somebody that really was, was quite fictional seeming to people. And, and they say things about her that are not true, you know, mm. that are objectively, obviously not true if you know the facts. And one of the things that happens with her is that people's opinions are often very negative about her work. And so, just to give an example, there's, you know, she wrote four novels, and it's in yeah. a lot of stories, and it's very easy for people, it's very common for people to say, she wrote these great essays and she was so smart, why did she write all these horrible novels? And there's two ways I approach that. I mean, first of all, I don't agree. I like some of the novels, and I think some of the essays fall short. As a biographer, since we're in a biographical setting milieu here <laughs> i'm not the person judging that in order in the way that like a, a book critic mm -hmm. looking at just this one book and kind of saying three stars or four stars that's not the thing i mean what's interesting about sontag is that she's in constant evolution and mm -hmm. i had yeah. this with clarissa specter too not all of her yeah. books are equally fabulous but they become, they lead to something. Right. And so it's that evolution of the right. mind. That's the yeah. story of a biography. If exactly. you don't have that, you don't really need the biography, I don't think. But it's interesting. It's very hard for people sometimes to understand that people do change over time. We understand yeah. it in life, I think, or right. hope. But understanding it in a book, very often we get a kind of set piece of the, you know, set piece of a person. And then we just kind of exemplify that over time. You can't do that with Sontag because she really is evolving. But there are certain kind of light motifs throughout her life that are very interesting. And there, I, I, 
well, maybe we should go back for people who don't know much about her life. I want to get to those motifs, but one of the things, and so I'm going to talk more about with you about her life, and then I want to talk about the motifs. Um, just for people who don't know, she's actually from the West, mm -hmm. which many people don't know, and that she lived in so many different places. I mean, she lived in California, she lived in Arizona. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Just give us the kind of background. That's really important. Yeah. Not only that she's from the West, but that she had a peripatetic childhood. Yeah. And that her father died in China, of all places, when he was just 33. And her mother was an alcoholic who was from New Jersey, from Montclair, Verona, grew up there, and then moved very young to Los Angeles at a time that Los Angeles is still a little city, right before the First World War. And her mother was kind of grew up as Hollywood grew up in yeah. Boyle Heights, if anyone here is from LA, it's the former Jewish neighborhood that's right east of downtown that was ruined by all sorts of typical urban disasters in the 20th century. And her mother and her grandmother, who was from Eastern Poland, came to Los Angeles because they loved the movies. They that's loved so the, this thing that was just coming up, you know, and that from the beginning of the First World War to the end of the First World War became one of the most recognizable and important industries yeah. in this country all around the world. And Hollywood became something that, that was famous. Certainly it was famous in Brazil. You know, the first books about Hollywood in, in Brazil come out in about 1913, 1914. Mm -hmm. So already it's gone all around the world. And in Europe it's the same. And the mother loses her mother at age yeah. 33. I mean, the mother, the grandmother is 33. And then the father dies. And then the mother is a, just an unhappy woman who's very beautiful and very dedicated to appearances. And she's always kind of looking for a place to be happier. Mm -hmm. So she, they moved to Florida for a while, they moved back to New York, they moved to New Jersey, they moved to Arizona, mm -hmm. they yeah. moved to Los Angeles, and then finally they moved to Hawaii. And they, the parents, not, not Susan herself. And so this is really an isolating experience mm -hmm. for children. I think if you know people who are in the army or, or exactly. um, not only does she not have a father, she doesn't really have a mother. And she doesn't really have any friends because she's being moved around every couple of years. So what she does have, and this sounds like a cliffhanger, but it's not because we know where this is going. What she has are books. She has the world that is in her mind and her imagination, yeah. and that becomes extremely yeah. important. And, and it's, it sustains itself throughout her life in, yeah. in that way. I mean, Through a very becomes, tough life. Yeah, no, no, and, and absolutely. I mean, and sort of one, one thinks of Susan Sontag, one doesn't think necessarily, even though she wrote eloquently about illness, somebody who really suffered terribly, and especially when she had breast cancer, the kinds of chemotherapy that was available and the kinds of surgery, I mean, it's just really grueling. Well, right? even when she had an abortion when she was yes, very young, that's true. That's the right. way it was illegal and the only thing that you did to, for, the only anesthesia you they had died. was they turned up the radio loud so that yeah. the people wouldn't hear you scream. Awful. I Awful. mean, that's, there's a lot of that that, yeah. People pain. didn't see behind this iconic it's, figure. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. It's pain. It's pain. Terrible, Real terrible pain. pain. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and that's and that becomes an interesting f phenomenon that there is an iconic figure, but there's a human being mm. that's living and suffering behind that uh, very often. And in point of fact, she's evolving. She's changing. One of the interesting things and I think it's made much of, and I think it's a real contribution, we're very clear about the fact is she got married very young. 
and she barely knew the man she married. I mean, with they the, got engaged after a week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. so. and he'd been her, and, and he was a, he was her teacher. She was a student, but beyond that, she. I mean, this is really astonishing, and to read it about in two thousand nineteen, that she he didn't if he if he was assigned reviews or things to do, she read the books and wrote the reviews. And, and this was, and she was excited about that. She's like, yeah. great. And these guys, he was that's what people did. At the time. Women, yeah. I mean, he wasn't just, like some big eminence with all these yeah, grad students. Too much students time to, uh, no. you know, the, the, you know, time management problems. But beyond that, beyond the reviews, that as I started to say, you make very clear that she was the writer of the book that he became known for, which is Freud: The Mind of the Moralist. You know, and that in private, I think she was very clear about. That's what she had done. But it wasn't publicly known, I don't no. think, at all, right? No, I think one of the fascinating things about this book and about the life is that Sontag seemed, if you look at her on the cover, she seems like this very contemporary figure, even though that picture is 50 years old almost. That's amazing. Yeah, Beautiful but she looks like she, well, she's, she's very walking down 6th Avenue or something. Yeah. She probably is walking down 6th Avenue. But she's actually, a lot of the categories have changed so much that it's hard to think back to the times. She does write this book, mm -hmm. and everybody knows she writes the book. I mean, I saw her sister a couple days ago, and yeah, and I mean, she was quoted in the Times. She said, of course she wrote it. We all knew mm -hmm. that, you know? Yeah. But that wasn't something you could really say, and it was funny when there was a piece in The Guardian, they got a copy of it, and they were gonna break this big news to everyone that she had actually written Freud, right. The Mind of the Moralist. And all, a lot of the older women that I interviewed during this yeah. process, yeah all emailed me and they're like, what's everybody so surprised about? This happened to everybody. Yeah. You know, everybody's forgotten what it was like. We all wrote our husband's books back in 1948. And there is Wouldn't the, think Susan Sontag would do it because well, one thinks yeah. of the present one. No, but one thinks yeah. of, you know, Susan Sontag in the 21st century, not Susan Sontag. Not that she was born, yeah. you know, in 1933, right. two weeks it's after Hitler came to power. I mean, it's not lately. No, luckily. yeah. But she did it. and. It was so funny to see all the outrage among younger women compared to the eye-rolling, blasé kind of shoulder big shrug. deal yeah, yeah. from the older women because a lot of the academic women were very rare in her generation. There were very few role models. And I think right. since we're in a biographical setting, again, I will feel free to mention Carolyn Heilbrunn's excellent yeah. Writing a Woman's Life, who says that girls of her, I guess she's younger than Sontag, based a bit, maybe. Yeah, not by too much. Not no, by too much. No. But she said that growing up, if you were an intellectual girl who wanted to write or you wanted to be an artist or you wanted to, she said there was only one figure that you could really look to and that was Madame Curie, whose mm -hmm. biography by her daughter, who is the only member of their family not to win a Nobel Prize, and her mother mm -hmm. even got two. Mm -hmm. Her husband, her brother, her dad, her mom, everybody except for her, but she did write this excellent biography, and that was the only thing that girls had to look yeah. to. So now we're so Don't used to like it. a woman professor, a woman writer, a woman journalist. You know, Clarice Lispector too was the yeah. first journalist ever in Brazil. Yeah, and that was in the 40s. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it calls us up short and makes us think, you know, times do change. I mean, there are, there, there are things. One of the things that I, you, I don't think you mentioned this, or if I did, I don't remember. Was the title her title, or do you I don't think know. it was his? Yeah. I don't know, but it's very her. 
Yeah, well, that's like why I wanted to ask yeah. that because I love the time, I mean, the mind of the moralist. And the reason I thought that was so interesting is that there's this kind of tension that I feel, and I think you speak of, maybe in, the, in those words, between Sontag as moralist and Sontag as almost uh, aesthetician. If she talks about early on, I think, in against interpretation about mm. you know, the erotics of art and that we understand art as, as something that's purely aesthetic in some way. Right. And yet, when we think of her later work, we think that she, especially when she sort of revisits photography, she becomes herself so clearly a moralist. And I think that was always there in a way. I, mean, it's interesting I think it was that, always there. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that that would be the title, whether it was hers or his. I mean, they, yeah. the best, you, worst you can say, they collaborated on it. But she was always interested yeah. in you know, sort of the moral response of the artist to, and you make much of this, representation, which becomes interesting Which is very problematic yeah. and it's very yeah. fun to talk about. If anyone will indulge me, I can go on about that for a long time. But I think that there's something- I'm here to indulge you. Oh, thank you, Brenda. Uh, <laughs> but it's funny because her moralism, yeah. she says I'm a Puritan twice over American. Oh yeah, Jew. that's right, American and Jew. Yeah. You know, so you think, oh God, I mean, so are we, right? So we know what that's like. It's not the easiest heritage always because you're always sort of, an ideal of moral perfection is held up to you. Yeah in a lot of different ways. And I think in America, particularly if you come from the West, I think this is what's important. I write about California's literature. Yeah, no, it's interesting because Gertrude Stein came from the West, yep. you know, and that's a sort of similarity, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah because no, it's, it's, it's similar because the responsibility to live up to this country that you've been given mm. becomes very, I, you, I think you can find that already in, the, in Massachusetts in the 17th century. Oh yeah. God has given you this place. Right. It's the richest country in the world and you're a little slub you yeah. know, not quite measuring up. Sontag felt that very keenly, and mm. then she finds it also in the Greeks. You know, she finds it in Socrates, and she finds it yeah. in the Greek moralists, just to come back to moralism. And she really does feel very strongly that morality and aesthetics are the same thing. Yeah. And this is something that she resists in a certain way because Early it's too on. intellectual. Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but she's trying to kind of be more, in against interpretation, she's trying to get away this is another thing that's changed so much that it's yeah. almost unrecognizable. She's basically trying to get away from Freud on the one hand and Marx on the other hand, which are these right. systems that's right. That's right. that were quite oppressive to people, I think, in those generations. They were so dominant, so overarching, and so complicated. And they did offer you the key to culture. If you could really master Freud, for example, or Marx, you could understand how the world works, how personality and psychology and politics and aesthetics work. But then, already by her generation, those are sort of starting, the cracks are, are right. starting to show. And so she chooses something that was not natural for her at all, which was the sensual approach to art, which was just kind of rocking out with you know, her. Right, right, um, right, right. Enjoying music, enjoying painting, enjoying film, enjoying sex, enjoying people. It's not a natural thing for her, and it's not really her natural mode. And I think that when she gets back into the moralism, she's on more solid ground. Yeah, it, it, well, it, I, I don't know what you mean, it wasn't natural. There's something sort of very exciting about that yeah. that she found, that, you know, that she yeah. was thrilled by it in a way. I think, you know, and I don't want to put words in, in your mouth, or, I mean, and you know so much more, but it seemed that 
that over time she over time she became less comfortable with that. It was, you know, these things are time bound. So against interpretation is very much product not just of her and her age, but the age she's living in. And by the time, say for example, she's going to Bosnia or even even before that, you know, there's more problematic before that is her trip, you talk about it very, very well, it seems to me, to Vietnam, and yeah. she wrote, writes trip to Hanoi, that she herself maybe is realizing that she needs to rethink some of this pleasure or that she wants to sort of reintroduce a point of view into Yeah, I it. think that when you look at this, it's really important, again, to realize how much change has changed, but also how much did change between In against interpretation to trip to Hanoi. And what really changed was... Now how many years is that? Five years. That's all, right? Four yeah. years. Five years. 61 or... Yeah, it's 63 to 68. But what happens, and something I found really touching that I didn't realize, and maybe it's wrong, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but somebody said to me, and it made sense, that the literature of post-war America, right after, you know, until, uh, until the 50s, a lot of it's about the personal struggle. You know? So even if it's, you're living in a country that's won the war, it's the richest and most powerful country in the world. It has all these problems, and yet, it's also the time of the black civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. It's the time of resurgent feminism and all this new, exciting American Freudianism that seems to be exerting people to live more free lives. And, to, and, and you, so you have books like Jack Kerouac's On the Road, mm -hmm. you know, like, let's head out into the desert. Norman O'Brown. Yeah. Norman O'Brown, absolutely. Yeah. Even Allen Ginsberg, you could sure. say would be part of that. Sure, definitely. And it's kind of, but it's kind of about you. It's not really about society. I mean, it has society in it, but it's really about yeah. exploring yourself. And then you have the great triumph of the new generation symbolized by John F. Kennedy. 1960. 1960. Mm -hmm. So not to, spoiler alert, give anything <laughs> away, but he is killed in 1963. No. I'm sorry, I know. Oh, I should, so it's in the book. I should say that, you know, I, I should just get people curious. I skipped that part. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. But the death of Kennedy, which is something that's, yeah. I mean, it's close to a lot of people. It's close to me also because my mother almost saw it happen. She was from Dallas, and she saw him right before it happened in downtown Dallas. And I know exactly the street and the time, and it's a really specific time, and it's a, you can trace it to the minute where America kind of snaps. Yeah. And what happens almost immediately after that, well, indeed, immediately after that, Lyndon Johnson becomes president, and then Lyndon Johnson continues and escalates the war in Vietnam, which is something that my father always says is the biggest difference between my generation and his, is that mm. when he was in college, and when he was a young man, all he thought about was getting the drafted draft was and getting draft. sent to Vietnam. Yeah. And there's a darkness that settles over America that I don't think we've ever really gotten rid of that comes out of that time in Vietnam. And so there is, you know, it's it, just one second about the against interpretation. She's yeah, no, experiencing it's... all this sensual art. And she says in this essay 30 years later that it seemed normal that there was a new masterpiece every week. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so exciting. But then that excitement goes, it becomes a nightmare, yeah. really. Well, especially by 68, especially by 68. trip to Hanoi, yeah. and you're in the height of the Vietnam War. And you talk about that book, really, I think, 
very well. I'm not so sure that people are familiar with it. It was a big deal at the time. It was yes. sort of up there with Jane Fonda going to. It was funny. <laughs> um, Vietnam, was In the it? I mean, Ken Burns documentary about Vietnam, which I watched, it was like 24 hours long or something. I didn't watch it. didn't say that on television. No, but it's okay, <laughs> because I, 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 it was fascinating to see that degree of detail. Yeah. Because, of course, you sort of know there was this horrible massacre war that went on and on and on and on and on and on. And when you even watch it over 24 hours, you feel the anxiety of it. But in 1968, she was invited by the North Vietnamese government to visit Hanoi, which was the most heavily bombarded city in the world and which was this communist dictatorship. I mean, you should say that as well, that she fell for completely yeah. because I think she was so disillusioned with her own country. And she was very far from being the only one. And she wrote this right. essay in which she's really struggling to reconcile the Vietnam that she's read about in the New York Times, which is a metaphor, which is a description, a yeah. narrative, and the actual place that she's seeing and finding that she doesn't really know what people are talking about. Exactly, yeah. She doesn't understand their language. They all look kind of the same to her. And she says, do I look the same to them? To yeah. them, Because like in America, people see that I'm different. I have a personality. I have a name. Mm -hmm. Here, I'm just some tourist, like what am I doing here? And she really wrestles with it in the pages of that essay mm -hmm. in a way that make it, I think, really compelling. And again, when you're talking about watching the progression of the mind, yes, mm -hmm. even in the pages of that one essay, you see that. Yes, yes, yes. Because it was this kind of distancing too. That's, well, she's trying. Yeah, but not quite there yet, it seems. Well, she's trying. You know? She sort of thinks, okay, I should be objective about this. I should write it this way and not that way. But it's very rare for Sontag, actually, to have that kind of dramatization of what she's looking at yeah. in the text. Well, that's interesting, because one of the points I think you make in the, and it's an interesting point that you make in the, in the biography, you know, I think, which is that she's not comfortable, really, writing in the first person, and that the way, especially as a biographer, biographer slash critic, because in a sense you're both, and I don't mean critic in the sense of criticism, but one who has a kind of point of view about her own work is that we learn a lot about her and the way she's thinking through how she writes about other people. I love that. I, it's I, your you, idea. I guess it is, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I love the credit I'm getting from Brenda here. It's true that when you read her profiles, yeah. which become very famous, because she's the first person to write. in America to write about all these mainly European authors, That's right. often not translated, people that she learns about in France or in Europe. And so she was always reputed, one of her great social and, and I think functions in the literary cultural ecosystem was that she would tell you about the new person in France or Italy right. or somewhere at a time when France and Italy were a lot farther away than they are now because books come on Amazon in two days. <laughs> it's hard to imagine how far away Paris would have been in her time. But I mean, it took a week to get there, you know, on a boat when she went with <laughs> yeah. Philip. You know, it, it was far away. <laughs> so, and yeah. so when you have these portraits, these are fascinating portraits, and it's really one of the really interesting things about her contribution. But I think that one of the functions of a biography is that when you look behind it mm -hmm. and you think, oh, so that's why she's so interested in the Bulgarian <laughs> theorist of crowds. It's because... He's sort of talking about the exact same thing that she's going through mm -hmm. at that moment, whether it's intellectually or amorously or, or, mm -hmm. or, or in her career. 
these people stimulate her to these reflections. Mm -hmm. And of course they are about the person. Mm -hmm. But I could tell you all sorts of things in this book that I am personally interested in and that I foreground more than somebody else would. Sure, of course, that, that's inevitable. That really, we all you know, do it. No, of course, yeah. that's inevitable and it doesn't disqualify her as a writer about, say, Canetti or whomever, right. any more than it would disqualify you writing about her. I mean, we're all sort of understanding motifs and someone else will understand or see or pick up different motifs. I mean, you, you come at her under seeing that in what she's doing. And I think, think that that's what gives the book shape, really, in many ways. And we want to see that because there was a way, at least in your telling, and, it's, and it strikes me as very true, the way that she was, uh, this is probably not the best phrasing, but there was a way in which she was escaping self yes. very often in the creation of well, a persona, and you know, I think you speak very eloquently yeah. about and the persona. and she does that always through literature, even when she's a little girl and she's reading. Right. That's her escape from her dreary, loveless, unhappy childhood. Mm -hmm. So of course she continues doing that, and I find, it, I find it quite touching, and I find it really interesting to see how it's a use of literature. I think that the idea that you're writing something reading something that would be outside yourself, that would be completely irrelevant to your own life. I mean, I can tell you, if that is the case, you don't finish the book, right? Right. You think, <laughs> no, okay. that's absolutely right. You know, you, you know. read things and you're touched by things and, and impressed by things and, and, and stimulated by things because they're relevant to you. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be in any kind of literal way. I mean, no, they, no, no. you know, I mean, it makes sense to you or they put into language some, a feeling that you didn't have the language for, or that you don't have the images for. And she's definitely able to do that. And she does that very, very well, you know. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. What's interesting, too, is that she's not just satisfied with one form of image making, which yeah. is to say language. She becomes a filmmaker. And you talk quite a bit about the films that she makes. I don't think it we have fun. access to them anymore. We do. Some do of we? them are, are on they YouTube. On? They? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it, Promised Land, the one she makes in Israel, is, which is, I think, the best one. And also, Unguided Tour, which is the film that she makes in Venice, I think is also on YouTube, or it's, it's on the internet. One of the fascinating things about this work was when I went to Sweden, yeah, which oh. is where she made the first two films in 1968. And this was actually, she was actually taken, or she was invited to Sweden to make it a film about Vietnam. That was her idea because Sweden was one of the countries, the two main countries along with Canada where American draft dodgers draft, mm -hmm. I don't know, I'm sure there's a nicer word for that because I think these were very courageous people and, and it, it took a lot of courage to do that. There were a lot of American deserters in Stockholm, but she got to Stockholm and she found that somebody else was already making a film about that. So she thought, oh God, what do I do? And so what she does is she makes her first film in the style or in the sort of homage to Ingmar Bergman, who, about whom she had written a famous essay, Persona, I mean, about the film Persona. And these films are completely wacky. I mean, have you ever watched them? I saw duets for Cannibal yeah. a long time ago. Okay. Um, yeah, that's the first one. Yeah. To say that they're unwatchable is sort of both <laughs> accurate and... As a biographer, it raises questions. Yeah. Because yeah, they're yeah. really, really weird. And you think, yeah. what's going on? Like, this woman isn't like insane. Like, she's not stupid. Right. Why? Yeah. And that's the biographer's question. Right, exactly. Why 
did she choose to do this this way, right? It's fascinating, <laughs> and it's really fun, and that's why you know you do have to give some sort of judgment, even if it's a, just a reflection of people's befuddlement at the time. Yeah. But you. What but do you, you mean your judgment? I mean judgment yeah. of the people at the time, or judgment of you now? Well, my judgment now isn't. I don't really try to foreground that in the book about it because I wouldn't yeah. really want to watch these films if I'm honest about it. I wouldn't. No, of but course. I do want to understand. Of course not, but your job is something else. Well, that's the thing. You yeah. know, you do you have, have to tell what is this about and what what right. is it. And it's really challenging. I mean, it's, it's easy in a certain way to write about stuff that you really like, but I think as a biographer, it's fun to try to get into the reasons why you might not like something or why you might not understand something. And what's fascinating about those films is that you see the cinematic world that she comes from. Mm a lot of which is in against interpretation and a lot of these early essays that made her seem to be a liberating figure to people because she was writing about things that people weren't writing about and people didn't really know about because you know you didn't have it on Netflix that's you know right. you had like one little cinema somewhere and if you lived in Houston or you know that's where I'm from or, or Minneapolis you probably didn't have it at all and you'd read about it and you'd think what is happening in Paris it was sort of thrilling Right, except there was more access. I think there were more, more movie theaters. I mean, and you there make were. the point yeah. that movies were so much part of the culture at that, you know, at a certain and time. And cinephilia in the 60s. was also exactly, exactly. Um, people I were mean, obsessed. People were talking about, you know, and you learned stuff. She always talked about how she, you learn how to smoke, and you learn how to kiss, and you learn how to wear a raincoat, right. and all the stuff from watching from movies, film. from movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah no, exactly. But there's a great thing I would encourage you if anyone wants a homework project that'll last a year as if my book isn't long no, enough. No, I was going to say. <laughs> I know, but it's fun. If you Google Sontag top 50 films, there's a New Yorker piece that publishes the list of those top oh, really? 50 films. Oh, really? Yeah. And What's I number watched one? Them. Do you remember? What? what? What was number one? I think it was Tokyo Story. Oh, maybe, that's interesting. Which is a fabulous movie. It is movie, a good movie. I like I that, Which I never would have watched without her. Uh. And I watched all these Ooh. movies, and some of them were just breathtakingly magnificent, and I just loved them. Yeah. And some of them I really didn't understand. And the more I watched of them, the more it lets you get into the mental world that she was coming from and yeah. the things that impressed her. Yeah. And so you think, well, you know, this is 50 years ago. People were interested in different things, and why was that? So I try yeah. to explain that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, 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 it's interesting. It, it brings me to a, a different kind of question, a research question mm -hmm. that sort of brings up. Because you're saying, okay, you went through the 50 list and you watched, you know, these you know, perhaps unwatchable movies of hers, you know, or initially unwatchable. At what point do you, you, you have this, you're taking this in, at what point do you begin to organize it in some way in your mind or on your desk in order to start making it visible to us, the reader, so that we understand it? There is a point when that becomes possible. I'm sure you know it. I'm not the one who's sitting but, I mean, in the as hot a seat. <laughs> no, but as a biographer, you know well, that you any come... kind of writer, but I'm, I'm yeah. curious when you did, because, because there's so much. There's her political writing, there's her cultural criticism, there are the movies you know, that she makes and that she writes about. There are the changes, there's you know, her looking back at on photography, there's... You know, there's a, a lot. So where... I think you start seeing the... The, the themes. Patterns? You start or? seeing the patterns. For example, one thing she's very obsessed with in these films also, and also in her early novels and her fiction, is mm. the image of seeing and blindness in the eye. Yes. This mm. becomes something that once you start seeing it, you start seeing it and right. you see it in everything and you see she's really trying to see and that's mm -hmm. in, including it against interpretation. Mm -hmm. The question of how do you see, what should you look at, becomes really urgent for her. And I think that when you, yeah. that's one theme. I mean, you see a lot of themes and then 
the point when I felt confident about the writing yeah. was never, I'll yeah. be honest. Yeah. It never But happened. you had to start. I and had to words, start, but I'll tell you, you I had to end, You never feel confident, too. but you did have to start. At some point, you had to say. Yeah. Well, and you I, had I'll that wonderful you, vignette at the beginning. That was you, it. So I'll tell you just three weeks ago, two weeks ago, I had this horrible then? nightmare. <laughs> no, that I couldn't. I realized in this dream that I couldn't change anything anymore because the book had already been printed. And it was complete agony because I have been yeah. always feeling, Revising. even to the last minute, that I yeah. maybe should do this or that. But I think that when you get to that point where you feel like I know enough about this person that I know where to begin. Yes. And the reason that happens is that I found an image in the archive of her mother and grandmother as extras yeah. in one of the very first Hollywood spectaculars. You found it in the archive? Just to interrupt for a minute. Is that where you found I that? I found it in the archive. Wow, it's amazing. And yeah. then I figured out what the film was and what the picture was and that this was the last picture that was ever taken of the girl and her mother, her mother and grandmother's. And it's an image of a film called Ravished Armenia, mm -hmm. or Auction of Souls, filmed mm -hmm. in New Hall, California, if there are any Californians here, in Southern California in 1919, which, if there are any Armenians here, you know was still in the middle of the Armenian genocide, and already there was an attempt to create an artistic reenactment of this genocide on oh, the other wow. side of the world. And a lot of the people in this film, which is partially lost but partially preserved, mm -hmm were actual Armenian refugees who had made it to the United States. So you can, and it was too much. They had like this whole panorama of these women being crucified mm. and all these people start fainting. And what happens is that's not acting. It was people who had actually seen that happen back home where they were from and couldn't take it. So again, you have this, it's gruesome and it's horrible, but it's also this question that comes throughout her life of how do you look at things, yeah. especially cruelty. And yes, pain. exactly. Exactly. It's a wonderful beginning, by the way, of the book. I mean, it's just sort of I stands by it. When, when, when you found, found it, it, you knew that this is where you wanted to begin. where yeah. she comes from. This question yeah. was already, yeah. it gives her a kind of genealogy. And then yeah. it goes all the way up to on photography. And then exactly. her very last essay, which is regarding the torture of others, of which others, is about right. Iraq, almost exactly 100 years later. It's amazing, really, when you think about the shape of that in that particular way. Well, it gives, you know what it does? It gives you a shape to a, a life that doesn't seem to have Well, because lives don't seem shaped, right. you know, because she's living it in that particular way. But, but yeah. it does, and in, in that sense, why it works is because, this will sound funny, is you're not making it up. In other words, it's actually there. Somebody else would maybe take different motifs and put them together, but having done what you've done, starting in that point where, with that film and going all the way to the regarding of the torture of others, and it's regarding, it's, it creates a kind of whole and brings something but so together. so often, it's so funny, I don't know if there are aspiring biographers or, or, or sure other biographer, or fellow biographers here, but one of the funny things about biography is that so much stuff happens that you wouldn't, if you were a novelist, you would not make that up. It would be too heavy-handed. You couldn't. Heavy Nobody would believe you. No, but you the know, idea that incredible. Susan Sontag was everywhere and saw everything and knew yeah. everyone and slept with everyone, all, all these things, you think, okay, well, that's sort of cheesy, you know? <laughs> and yet, when the Berlin Wall falls, she's in a movie theater in Berlin. Yeah. And as she's walking out of the film, almost as if they had sort of waited for her to be finished with the film, <laughs> the East German border guards open the floodgates that have been closed for almost what, 35, yeah. 30 years? And she smells the tear gas coming from the, the rioting hordes of East Germans escaping East Germany. 
if you were a novelist trying to write about yeah. somebody who was everywhere and did everything, you would be like, no, oh, that's no, a little that's, much. Yeah, 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 you'd lose all credibility in that sense. But what's interesting, though, about where she is, you know, that she happens to be there, you mm. know, on the spot. One of the interesting things sort of later in the book, and, and it becomes problematic, I think, for the way people respond to her, is 9-11. Yeah. You know, it's closer, it's still 18 years ago, but, but it's... People who are in college now don't remember it. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's weird? right. No, that's exactly right. But she wasn't here. Well, she was also in Berlin, and it's fascinating that she writes over and over about how yeah. you actually, if you, if you haven't seen something yourself, if you haven't actually experienced it's, it's it. It's such an interesting metaphor in, in some way. It's amazing. That's why in the book I even have a picture of CNN, of the guy on CNN, looking at the Twin Towers with the smoke coming out. Because she was in the Adlon, you know, which is right by the Brandenburg Gate in central Berlin, watching this on TV. And she wrote this essay that I think, I must say, is a really good essay. One of the interesting things, by the way, about that essay, and then we should talk, I mean, we haven't said what it is, but the first sentence I didn't realize was cut. Cut. Yeah, I mean, that changes everything, doesn't it? changes it? everything, but she, she refers to herself as a heartbroken American and New Yorker or something. It was a time, just for those of us who are less old than I am, when there was... Younger a, is the word. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a birthday, so I'm sort of... Happy birthday. You know, thank you. I'm, I'm sort of edging towards more old rather than the younger, but it happened to me, this horrible cataclysm that had not happened in the United States for since 1941, and certainly never right. in the mm -hmm. city in the middle of the empire, was the most shocking bit of anything that I think happened in this country in my lifetime. And it was absolutely not a time when there was any sense of nuance in the culture, because people were wounded. People were physically dead and yeah. wounded. And the city stink. I mean, I, right. I don't know if people remember that as well as they might should, but it was for weeks and weeks and weeks. And there was this smell and these dead bodies and this toxicity. And then people started sending anthrax to the White House. And I mean, it was just absolutely uh -huh. terrifying. And she wrote an essay that basically said that these people were not cowards. And terrorists. That the terrorists who had yeah. hijacked these planes and killed themselves in this spectacular fashion were not cowards. And that the United States, rather than lashing out at other countries and starting a new war, should look to why people hated America. And this was something that Americans have always had a hard time understanding, that America is this very ferocious, extremely violent empire, yeah. which it has been since day one, really. I mean, and if you go back to 1619, which I'm happy that we are now going back to, you know that this is a country that is in many ways built on cruelty and slavery and, 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 and racism, uh, like every other country, I should yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I've lived in Europe for most of my life, and I have to say, like, America compared to France or England or Germany or Italy, you know, we've got our stuff, so do they. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not no, maybe exactly. worse than China or India, but still, if you... Uh, yeah. The, the physical, emotional wound that yeah. this was, meant that it was very hard to say anything. And, but it was, I think, very salutary to say something. But the attacks, I mean, she was compared in the New Republic, which is, you know, usually a pretty, what's the word? Liberal. Liberal-esque, liberal-ish. Well, in the and then, to, you know, in 2001. Yeah, then it was yeah, still. Yeah. But, you know, the New Republic compared or, yeah. her to Osama bin Laden. That I don't. Mm. Yeah. I mean, this was at the time. And so 
I really think that when you look at her legacy also, and you think about what can she mean for us now, there's a need for intellectuals to resist mm -hmm. jargon, mm -hmm. especially at these times mm -hmm. when everybody agrees. Because everybody in America and everybody around the world agreed that this was absolutely horrifying. Mm -hmm. Just there are no words to describe it. Mm -hmm. And it's specifically, I think, at those times that you need the mm -hmm. adversarial voice. Mm -hmm. And I mean, now everybody has an adversarial voice because everybody's on Twitter yelling at each other all the time. <laughs> that's really different than actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you need that ability to step back, maybe. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's interesting. But it's interesting, too, because as they go back, you know, when, when they cut, I wonder why they cut that first sentence, because it, mm. it, you know, of the piece, because it does orient it. You know, she is saying, it, you know, I am feeling, and then goes beyond that, you know, to be kind of analytical about, yeah. you know, this isn't isolated. This didn't come out of nowhere. It's, right. it's not an act of randomness, you know, in that particular but that's sense. Fine. I mean, that's what a thinker does is, yeah. is, is, is not, because it's very easy to denounce terrorism. I mean, that's yeah. not that original. No. Let me just sort of shift a little bit because it's related but slightly different, and I want to get to this point, too, because one of the things you talk about, and I think you, you'll see why sort of the connection I'm making. One of the things you talk about is her need for and lack of, at times, empathy, yeah. which I think is itself an interesting motif in the book. And I guess in that essay, it's the, I, I agree with you, it's important to have that kind of analysis that she offers, but sometimes at it, there's a way in which it needs to be, it, it needs to be woven with a kind of empathy at the same time. Well, one of the really challenging things about writing about Sontag was that question, because there's no question at all that Sontag was a very herself, often an incredibly cruel person. Yeah. And this was something that she performed almost in public. Mm to her loved ones, you know, including Annie Leibovitz and including her son. Her son. She could be absolutely brutal to people and she could humiliate people. Yeah. And, you know, if you've lived in New York and you've known these stories, everybody had a story like that. Yeah. To the point where for me as the biographer and someone who's on her side and wants to understand her and wants to sort of figure out what she's thinking and why she's doing this, it becomes really oppressive yeah. to, to hear all those stories. And you know they're true. At the same time, you know the heroic great stories are true. And in the 9-11 piece, as she was, what she was accused of was being insensitive to yeah. what people were feeling. And there is a way in which I like the adversarial side of that. But then someone told me, oh, after 9-11, she said, she didn't care about all the bankers in the World Trade right, Center. Right, exactly. She just cared, cared about the West about restaurant the rest workers. People who, yeah, worked in the restaurants or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and this woman well, who told me this said, "Wait, like, why you don't make care those about, distinctions? <laughs> you know, you know, the banker who dead. jumped a hundred stories to his death on live yeah. television. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't, and the empathy is something that goes throughout her work. She's often trying to." write her way into empathy rather than actually feel things intuitively. And it's very painful for her not to have that. She knows she doesn't have it. She yeah. writes about it. And the, the result is that people say, oh, she slept with everyone. She had all these lovers. Isn't that interesting? Because they're kind of jealous or something, maybe? <laughs> like, they wish I, they slept with or Bobby Kennedy or with, you know, whatever. But Maybe they wanted to have slept with her, and that's Well, the a lot of people that, didn't know. want to, yeah. um, of course, because she was so beautiful. But I think that when you look at the 
what you look at what that actually means in somebody's life, having a whole lot of relationships yeah. means that you have a whole lot of broken relationships. It means mm -hmm. that that's time and time again, it didn't work out. And mm -hmm. this is a real source of pain for her. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's interesting because, it, because I find it, I, I mean, it, it is a source of pain. It is something that she wrestles with. It's something that you as biographer have to wrestle with. And then beyond that, it becomes interesting for the biographer. In other words, I think what you're saying too is that there's a way in which a precondition, if you will, of a biographer is to have empathy, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, and Sontag demands, as a biographer, she demands a lot of empathy. Do you think she could have been a biographer? That's a great question. I don't know. I think probably not. Yeah. I think probably not. Also because the, if maybe it's related to some of her problems with fiction also. Mm, yeah, that's because interesting. Because fiction is an art of empathy. Yes. And it's an art of, it's not really a rational thing. Right. And I think that that's one of the reasons why people who write, I don't like the word nonfiction, but we'll just use it. There is a different sensibility between the person who writes fiction and the person who writes nonfiction. Mm -hmm. But it is, I think, at its base, a need to go into somebody. And Sontag, for me, was somebody that I had to go into time and time again mm -hmm. and really try to step back and try to rise above mm -hmm. the emotions that she unleashed in people. Or in you. Or in me. Yeah. Because often, I'm again, I'm on her side. I want to understand it. She makes it tough sometimes. I bet. You know, I bet. Oh, how did you deal with it? Walk away? Go to a different chapter? No, I actually wrote it straight on through, yeah. strangely enough. Yeah. No. How did I deal with it? I kept trying to understand her mm. and think, why is she doing this? Mm -hmm. And why is she doing this? And why is she doing this? Mm -hmm. And I didn't always have the explanation. And often with Sontag, because she was so polemical, you would have the same dinner party. And you would have one <laughs> yeah. story about it in which she was great. Yeah. And the other story was that yeah. she was this terrible person. So what I tried to do a little bit in the book was just say, okay, Brenda yeah. Wineapple says X, Y, Z. <laughs> Benjamin Moser, however, yeah. remembers ABC. Yes. Right. And not really try to be in there myself to the extent that the emotional stuff Well, not to the extent the emotional stuff is. Then you have to navigate, I guess that's a contemporary yeah. word for it. It's a word I don't like, but it works But in that sense. But at the same time, you do have a very strong voice. Mm. In other words, I think bio, for me, biographies that don't work are, they don't work because there is no voice. And I don't mean an I voice, mm. like, you know, I'm Ben Moser and I'm going to tell you this, you know, in, yeah. in the first person. But, but in the sense of, we're very clear that there are times when you're separating yourself out from what she is doing or what she thinks she's doing or even maybe what other people think she's doing. And yeah. you are making, you have a point of view, let me say that. Well, I thought she would like that. I thought that, I thought she was not, I thought a book about Susan Sontag that was boring and that wasn't argumentative to a certain extent would yeah. not be a book about Susan Sontag. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, so you're, yeah. in that sense, you're engaging with her. Engaging. Yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. talking, talking back or talking with, and talking back sometimes and talking yeah. with sometimes. You well, know? I think that gives it, I hope that my engagement with her is palpable and that it's something it's that people. It's definitely palpable. And that people, I don't want everybody to agree with every conclusion I have about Susan. I don't even know if conclusion is the right word, but because mm -hmm. I don't necessarily want to have the last word. But I'd like the 
conversation to go on. Yeah. Do you think it will with Susan yeah. Sun? Do you think people will reinvent her, reread her? Do you It's already happening. Is it? It's so funny to read the reviews, you know, you get all the I could write these reviews myself. If could you, or couldn't? I could. If you gave me the <laughs> stats, you know, you could say like Maybe you should. Whitman wrote his own reviews. <laughs> you want to write these? That's true. Right? Well, because you know, I mean, Just I'll tell saying. you one thing, one example <laughs> that I, could, I, could, I knew everyone was going to hate this, was I talk a lot about what the classic Jewish intellectual yeah. Freudian person would hate, which is what they call pop psychology. Right, right. I write a lot about the fact that her mother was an alcoholic, and right, I write a lot right. about the well, fact that she was gay and in the closet. Now, these are things that were not understood at the time. Right. What parental alcoholism, yeah, yeah. They did, people didn't know about it. It right. wasn't something that existed. And I knew, I knew that this would trigger people. Huh. Because I know that people don't often take seriously 12-step stuff. Huh. They, they the do alcoholism. take the mind of the moralist and, and, and you know, right, the interpretation right, right. of dreams. That is, is OK. Yeah. But they look yeah. down on Right, right, right. That. It's a sort of, yeah, yeah, pecking order of uh, what's intellectually respectable. And, well, it's yeah. very funny, and it's, it's a similar thing you could say about something like going to yoga or, or exercising. You think, you should exercise more. You'd feel better. <laughs> so obvious. Yeah. And yet, if you put that in an intellectual biography of an intimidating-seeming thinker, People would say, oh, come on. But you know in your own life that actually, like, right, would be, you feel better if you yeah, sleep more. Yeah, yeah, which she didn't. She didn't. Well, she told Camille Paglia, who is, has a great cameo in this, um, she says to her, oh, you know, well, if you're having trouble writing, just what I do to finish my essays, I just stay up for two weeks. <laughs> and you think. Oh, my God. Because she took amphetamines, yeah. which actually, like, my own mother says, you have to remember, like, my doctor gave me amphetamines to study for my SATs. Like, she got speed. People got it to lose weight. People got it to concentrate. And actually, a lot of things that are given to treat ADD and stuff, it's basically right, it's still basically amphetamines. That. Yeah, yeah. And this was something whose dangers weren't quite as understood as they would later be. So you're not trying to judge it, necessarily. Right. You're just trying to kind of right. set the parameters so that people can understand why. There's you know, something you just said, and I just want to read something so that people have the sort of benefit of your beautiful prose. And because it, it, I think the end of the book speaks to, and I'm not going to give away anything, not to worry, but it speaks to what you said before, that you know, yours is not necessarily the last yeah. word on Susan Sontag. And I think you know, what Ben is able to do is bring together a number of the themes, some of which we're talking about tonight but also in such a way that it's so very nice, too, because it brings us back to the issue of biography. And this is what Ben writes. She warned against the mystification of photographs and portraits, including those of biographers, which is a really very nice sort of wonderful pin to the kind of extent and limits of biography, and it sort of opens the door. So. I hope it does bring people closer to her, and I hope that she inspires you to read her work and to go back to it and, and, and move, her, move her spirit forward into new generations and into new thoughts. So thanks, everyone, thank so you. much. Oh, thank you. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell.
That's it for episode 10 of Read and Succeed. Join us next episode reviewing a modern equivalent of Susan Sontag in The Undying by American poet and essayist Ann Boyer. We'll even get a guest in studio. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening.